than the world. From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you are with us, ending your week. want to remind you that the program can be found at TonyPerkins.com. Also encourage you to download the Stand Firm app. Wherever you get your apps, type in Stand Firm, and you can find this program and all the other FRC resources sent directly to you on your phone. It's too busy in Washington, D.C. for August, uh, but here we are anyway, wrapping up a busy week today. Uh, on the program, we're going to talk to a Rhode Island mom who filed a public records request from her local school district and now finds herself in a legal struggle to get that information. Who has sued her? Also, we'll talk about the challenges your kids are getting from technology and what one company is doing to try to help parents protect their kids. At the end of the program, we're going to discuss the biggest threats to kids in public schools from a worldview perspective and what parents should be doing about it. There is a theme today of education because it is Friday the 13th, and what could be scarier than what's happening in education across the country today? The past year has been revealing for a lot of parents. In some cases, it's helped them see for the first time what their children are being taught, and many of them don't like it. Our schools are not just teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also critical race theory and radical LGBT ideas and more. In addition, teachers unions who have long told the public that their highest priority is the education of children have fought to keep schools closed while children struggle and parents look for help. As a result, many parents have looked outside the public school system for options for their children. And joining us now to discuss how parents are navigating these new waters and what might be ahead in the future is Corey DeAngelis, who's the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children, which is a federation that empowers families, especially low-income families, with the freedom to choose the best K-12 education for their children. Corey, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Well, we're glad to have you, and I do really appreciate your uh, vigilance on this issue because I think it's it's increasingly important, and, and the public is aware of that, uh, but you are a pioneer in that field, and we appreciate you for doing that. And give us a... Um, a review of sorts of the last year and a half. COVID has really changed a lot of things for America. Education, one of those things. What has happened in education during the uh, COVID season? Yeah, well, COVID didn't break the public school system. In a lot of ways, it was already broken. And the past year and a half simply shined a spotlight on the main problem with K-12 public education in America, which happens to be a long-existing, massive power imbalance between the public school monopoly and individual families. And now, thankfully, families are fighting back. They've realized that there isn't any good reason to fund a failing, closed institution when you can fund the student directly instead. And so 17 states this year already have passed, enacted, or expanded new programs to fund students as opposed to systems. And support for school choice is at an all-time high. A 10 percentage point jump we observed in the latest Real Clear Opinion Research polling nationwide from April of 2020 with 64% support to June of 2021 with 74% support of school choice. So the teachers unions overplayed their hand. They showed their true colors by uh, putting 
crazy things into the curriculum that a lot of families weren't weren't okay with. And they've also, they're now uh, pushing the envelope even further with the debates around masking. And there's a lot of states currently introducing bills to allow families to take their children's education dollars elsewhere if they disagree with the curriculum in the school or if they disagree with the masking decision at the school district level. So this this whole system has been exposed and it's glorious because the teacher unions are actively destroying their own empire. And tell me, uh, we see that the support for public for school choice is certainly increasing. How many parents have already made that choice for their children and taken their kids out of the system in the last year and a half or so? Yeah, so even before these expansions of educational freedom, which will make it easier to exit the public school system, the latest federal data from the past year suggests that 1.5 million students nationwide, K through 12, have left the public school system. So there's a mass exodus from the government school monopoly. And homeschooling numbers, according to the Census Bureau, have essentially tripled over 10 percent or 11 percent of households now are formally homeschooling their children. That's not government schooling at home. This is defined as formally homeschooling, not enrolled in the public school system at all. So of those one and a half million kids who have left the government school system, are most of them going to homeschool as opposed to private school, charter school options? Well, we don't have granular data on that at, at the moment. It, it, we have some state-level information suggesting that the homeschool uh, percentage jumps have increased higher than any other sector, and then that has been followed by the charter school sector. Uh, in certain states, I've seen the public school numbers drop by around 3 to 5%. But then for charter school sector, there's been a jump in enrollment by about three to five percent. Uh, and then homeschooling enrollment has it depends on the state, but it's just blossomed everywhere that we've seen uh, across the country. You mentioned also the 17 states that in the last year and a half have enacted legislation, either creating or expanding school choice options within their state. Do you think then the the uh, private school uh, growth might lag these uh, legislative changes that make that more uh, more of an option for families? So do you think that growth is still to come? Yeah, I think that's still to come because the, we've unleashed educational freedom this past year in the legislatures, but that takes some time for that to actually happen on the ground. For example, West Virginia went from zero to 100 when it came to the school choice uh, discussion. They didn't have any charter schools in last year on the ground. They didn't have any private school choice initiatives in West Virginia, but they just passed something called the Hope Scholarship Program, which will be uh, available to 93% of the school-aged population in the state, which is a huge, uh, expansive program. It's an education savings account, and that will just be uh, phenomenal for families going forward. New Hampshire passed a similar program called Education Freedom Accounts, which will be available to about half of the school-age population. And there's been some other victories as well that are interesting, such as in Florida. They have this, they're having this fight about whether the, the schools should have masking or not. DeSantis said that you can't force the kids to mask in the public school system and that families should be able to make that decision. The Florida Teachers Union wasn't very happy about that because they want to they want to uh, rule over children and, and force them all to do what they what they would like. And the Depart the Board of Education in Florida just last week 
responded with unanimously with approval for allowing all families, regardless of income, to be able to take their children's education dollars to a private provider of education. So they just unleashed a universal school choice last week in Florida if you disagree with the masking decision in your public school system. That could be if you disagree with a mask mandate or if you disagree with a mask ban. Either way, uh, the family would be eligible to take their children's education dollars to another provider. Which, of course, seems like the right thing. If you don't like what your school is doing, uh, either side of that issue, you should be able to go to a school that supports what you and your family want. But, you know, there, there is kind of this, this convergence of issues right now. You mentioned the mask debates, and we're all familiar with those. Uh, we've heard, you know, in Loudoun County and other places around the country, uh, there's strong concern about uh, – about basically gender pronouns and just kind of how they're dealing with that issue, uh, critical race theory debates raging at school board levels around the country. Do you have any sense of which issue is most motivating to parents when it comes to finding alternatives for their kids? Well, it depends. It's all of these things at the same time, right? Each family has their own concern about the traditional school system. And, but look, all of these battles over masking, school reopenings, and curriculum fights, they're all just symptoms of the larger problem, which happens to be the one-size-fits-all government school system. Just imagine if we were all residentially assigned to a government-run grocery store, and we all had to fight with one another about the one-size-fits-all uniform basket of groceries we all received each week. We, none of us would get exactly what we wanted. We'd pay a lot for it out of, out of the tax system, and it wouldn't really make any sense, and we'd all be in this perpetual state of disorder and, and argumentation when instead the obvious solution is to let me choose whatever I want in my grocery basket. The same thing when it comes to K-12 education. The funding should follow the student to an institution that aligns with their values instead of trying to force other, our values on other people's children. Now, you mentioned the 10% growth you've seen in, uh, in support for school choice in, I, th I think you said, the last year or so. Uh, do you expect that momentum to continue, and do you think that will drive further political change on this issue? Yeah, families have woken up. I mean, this whole past year and a half has really exposed the problems with the system. And so every time we see an, an issue rise up, whether that's masking or critical race theory in the classroom or horrible test scores, everybody is understanding now, or a lot of people are more likely to understand now, that the problem there is the funding mechanism, that we fund buildings regardless of how well they do and regardless of our choice in the matter. And the best solution is to provide bottom-up accountability to fund students as opposed to the buildings to empower families to have options going forward. Families never want to feel powerless like they did over the past year and a half. They don't want to mess with the, the system that abuses their children's rights. And the best way out of that, that people are starting to realize that there isn't any good reason to fund the building when you can fund the student directly instead. So I, I have a feeling they're going to continue to push forward towards expanding educational freedom and finally families, more and more families are going to free their children from the clutches of the teachers' unions. And, and that, is, that is certainly the hope. Now, you mentioned the, the, these teachers' unions and, and the power that they have had uh, within the system. And I think they are the ones who stand to lose the most from this, uh, from this change that I think is inevitable, and I think we're starting to see that happen. But they're not going to give up easily. How do you see this going over the next couple of years? 
Well, I think the expansions are going to first come in red states. What we saw with the 17 states this year, they were controlled by Republican legislatures. So it's more likely to happen in a red state, but that doesn't mean it can't happen in a, in a bluer state. And that doesn't mean that Democrats never support school choice uh, agendas. And, and look, I will say that it should be a non nonpartisan issue. School choice is an equalizer. It brings about more competition. Uh, a lot of the people who vote against K-12 school choice and funding students directly support funding students directly when it comes to higher education with Pell Grants and pre-K programs such as the Federal Head Start program. With all these other initiatives, the funding goes to the family and they can choose public or private, religious or non-religious providers. We do the same thing with food stamps. The funding goes to the family and then they can choose Walmart or Trader Joe's or Safeway. The funding goes to the person, not the building. And what's interesting to me is a lot of the same people that support these other initiatives that fund individuals as opposed to institutions, they oppose it only when it comes to K-12 education, and that's a difference in power dynamics. That's the only difference here. Corey, we only got a few seconds left, but quickly, where can a parent go if they want to find out about choice options close to them? FundStudentsNotSystems.org. FundStudentsNotSystems.org. Great website, great slogan as well. Corey DeAngelis, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And we, this is just, you know, on the heels of back to school. It's one of the biggest issues there is. FundStudentsNotSystems.org. If you're not really comfortable with where your kid is, find some place that you are. We're going to talk next uh, because of parents who are concerned. There is a parent suing, being sued by their school district in Rhode Island. We'll talk to her right after the break. When it comes to reading the Bible, sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start or to understand how to apply scripture to everyday life. There are also those passages that leave people scratching their heads, wondering what some things even mean and what they're supposed to make of it. We all know that scripture is divinely inspired and given by God, and it's useful to us as God uses it to prepare and equip us to do good work for his kingdom, to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God's Word is powerful, but it shouldn't intimidate you. That's why Family Research Council offers the Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can stay grounded in God's truth, navigate our culture from a biblical worldview, and grow closer to God. This plan will help you to practice the discipline of reading Scripture every day so you can be transformed by God's Word. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org slash Bible. God is the author of life and has created man in His image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass legislation that highlights this principle, including laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know if your state legislators are working to protect unborn babies. The pro-life laws FRC tracks at the state level include those addressing late-term abortions, fetal dignity, defunding abortion businesses, and providing medical care for babies born alive after an attempted abortion. See where your state stands on pro-life abortion. Check out our pro-life maps at frc.org 
prolifemax. Most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, but current research shows that only 6% actually have one. This means that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Increasingly, we see the disastrous effects of a culture that has rebelled against the truth of God's Word. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center is an exciting new ministry created to help Christians develop and live by a biblical worldview, to understand why scriptures must be authoritative, and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access the center's free resources at frc.org slash worldview. Why is the school committee so obsessed with treating students based on their skin color? We need answers to that, not lawsuits against parents. Welcome back to this Back to School special edition of Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. And that is the voice of a concerned Rhode Island mother who inquired as to what her child was being taught in her local public school. She asked to see emails between specific teachers at her school's discussion about critical race theory and how it's being taught and discussed with students, which a parent is entitled to. Well, the local chapter of the National Education Association, one of the nation's largest teachers unions, thought these questions were unacceptable and sued this mom and the school district to keep that information from the parent. Joining me now to discuss her story is the brave mother, Nicole Solis. Nicole, welcome to Washington Watch. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, we are glad to have you. I know this isn't necessarily fun for you because no parent wants to spend their time doing these things, but we do appreciate your courage and your willingness to uh, do uncomfortable things on behalf of your child and everyone else's child. Uh, and first, I want to start, just tell me how this came to be. Tell us the story from your perspective, how you got here. Yeah, so this happened because I was asking my school questions about gender theory and critical race theory being taught in the school district. And the only way they would answer my questions were through public record requests. So they told me to submit these public records requests. And then about two months ago, my school turned around and threatened to sue me in a public school committee meeting where they put my name on the agenda. And they held a five-hour meeting, which was more like a trial, because I submitted these public records requests, which they told me to submit. They ended up voting not to sue me. Two months later, here we are, the NEA has sued me, and as well as the school district, and they are doing that to prevent the disclosure of public information because they believe that the privacy interests of their teachers are more important than the public interest in public information. Now, this exchange you were having with your, with your was it your school? Was it an administrator? Was it the school board? Who told you to file the public records request? multiple people in the school department. First, the principal told me to file a public records request. Then the uh, school committee told me to file public records requests. And then when I went to the director of curriculum to get the curriculum, 
she also affirmed that I should be filing public records requests. Um, my school routinely tells residents to file public records requests anytime we have questions. Yeah, and, and the reason that is, and for those who might not understand this process, public records uh, are accessible and they are obtainable through public records requests by the public by virtue of being public. Politicians deal with this all the time, uh, which is why any me email a politician sends to anybody can be requested by any citizen because it is a public record. So there's nothing unusual about this, and this, in fact, would be uh, why they told you to do that, because that's how you get uh, uh, correspondence between public officials and, and teachers as by virtue of being public employees uh, fit that category. Were you surprised by the response that you got? Uh, when they threatened to sue me, yes, because they were responding to my request with estimates, and they would email me and say, could you please clarify this request? Let us know, were you looking for this or that? So they were being very cooperative and friendly even with these public records requests. When they put this on the agenda, it was absolutely meant to blindside me and publicly humiliate me. And I think they even meant to have a chilling effect on other parents and taxpayers from engaging them and getting public information and the truth about what's going on in school. Why is it, do you think, that they changed their tune from cooperative and even agreeable to suddenly hostile to your requests? Because I don't think they thought I would follow through. I think that they thought I would submit a few questions, maybe get some non-answers in the form of answers. But instead, every time I got an answer that didn't make sense, like, oh, we don't have responsive documents when you're asking something about critical race theory. Well, with public records requests, you have to ask very specific questions. And if you don't form the uh, question just so, um, your words won't bring you back a hit on a responsive document. So I kept asking questions in a slightly different way, and sometimes I will get documents, and I don't think that they liked that I was used. Seems we have a connection issue. Hopefully we will get that resolved uh, quickly, and I'll let the guys in the in the in the room tell me if we're getting come get that coming back. We're talking to Nicole Solis parent of a child in the Rhode Island School District, and she's telling her story of dealing with the public uh, records requests in her in her local school district. We have her back. Nicole, do we have you back here? Okay. Okay. We lost you there for a second. Um, and, and I, I want to, you mentioned that the, the school board had a meeting basically about you, and, and your interpretation of that was they were essentially trying to discourage you and silence you and make you stop doing what you've been doing. It doesn't appear that that worked uh, where you're concerned. What kind of reaction have you gotten from other parents in the community? Um, it's been overwhelming support. I have parents reaching out to me that I, I haven't met yet in person and telling, that, telling me that they support me, that they've also had major transparency problems with my school, that they've been bullied by my school. Um, so the support is really, I think, what made my school board vote not to sue me. Hundreds of people came to this meeting, and I don't think that they expected that to happen. I think that they thought that they were going to publicly humiliate me and destroy my reputation. Were you surprised to see the teachers union respond in the way they have? Um, no, because the teachers union has infested my school district. There was a teacher union member on my school committee who resigned shortly after they attacked me. And the teachers union, at least in Rhode Island, um, is in bed with the, legislat uh, the, le the legislature um, and my town council. So I I'm really not surprised that they're acting this way because my school board in particular is really just a shell for the teachers union. 
Well, Nicole, I, I know that this has been a lot of work for you. You've probably almost certainly invested a lot more time into this entire thing than you ever thought you would. What advice would you give to other parents who might have concerns with what's going on in their kid's school? And we got about 30 seconds. Submit public records requests and specifically ask for the communications of union members with school officials and school employees. The teachers union is saying that they want to have uh, a push out of critical race theory in the school district. And if they're going to participate in our children's education, then their participation is subject to public disclosure. And we should all be reading those emails. Nicole Solis, really appreciate you, your time and your courage. Thank you. And that is, it, it's courage right there, um, because that's a lot of work. You take on the teachers' unions by yourself, um, they're going to push back. But she's got a lot of parents on her side as well. But teachers' unions and school policies are not the only threats to our kids. What are they exposed to on, with their phones? What's technology giving to them these days? We have one company that's trying to help you solve that problem. We'll talk about it when we come back. Are you looking for a go-to platform where you can get relevant commentary on the cultural issues of the day from a biblical perspective? Today, it can be hard to find this in light of media censorship of conservative and Christian voices. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every American has a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. And we think it's important for you to have access to these stories. To get the facts and stories the left doesn't want you reading, head over to frc.org slash blog to check out our newest blog posts. We cover the issues you care about, all written by our experts in policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview. Our experts unpack the topics that other media platforms won't, like current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the increasingly radical shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, go to frc.org slash blog. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today on this special back-to-school edition of Washington Watch. As kids across the country either go back to school or prepare to go back to school, we want to help you parents make sure you know how to best support your child in that endeavor. Our next guest wrote the following. He said, the science is clear. Tech is causing a worsening mental health crisis among our kids. There is a growing consensus among experts that tech is behind the shocking increase in suicidal ideation, depression, loneliness, and anxiety. As parenting expert David Eaton said, the smartphone is to the brain as the cigarette 
is to the lung. We've discussed very many ways around that the world tries to influence our kids through public schools, entertainment, their friends, the list goes on. Parents have plenty to be concerned about. But one company is trying to make your parenting just a little bit easier. Joining me now to highlight this service is Matt Gore, Canopy Senior Director of Strategy and Operations. Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, tell us uh, first what the, what the problem that you see that you're trying to address here is. The problem is that smartphones are changing the way that kids are growing up. And unless parents take strong, concerted action, the bottom line is that the Internet is going to shape their children in problematic ways. So parents need to be thoughtful about the ways that they're parenting, not just in the real world, but also online. And, and there are a lot of applications. There are a lot of companies kind of trying to deal in this space. What makes what you guys are doing unique? Canopy, uh, the Canopy digital parenting app really does two things that nobody else can do. The first is that it uses the most advanced artificial intelligence to scan and detect pornography that other apps miss. So Canopy is the best way to make sure that your child doesn't stumble across pornography while they're doing their homework. The second thing that Canopy does is Canopy uses artificial intelligence to scan images on a device and can actually detect if there's nudity in an image that a kid took. What does that mean? That means I can protect a kid from making the worst mistake of their life and sending a nude selfie of themselves out, which unfortunately is increasingly common. Do you think the biggest threat from two kids from technology is things that they would do purposely or things that might happen accidentally just by virtue of being there? That's a great question. What's really changed is in the past, kids had to try to find inappropriate content. Kids had to go looking for where to get in trouble. It's totally changed. Today, I believe it's more than 60% of girls between the ages of 12 to 18 have been asked for a nude online. Most kids who first see pornography weren't looking for it. It was an accident. And so good kids today will see porn online unless parents take action. Good kids will be asked for nudes online unless parents take action. You don't have to be a bad kid. In fact, you can be the best kid around, and you will still run into extremely dangerous things online. But it's not what kids are trying to do. It's what kids can hardly avoid it unless parents take action. Yeah, and it's, there's peer pressure. There's all sorts of challenges with this. Now, I know a lot of parents are going to be listening to this, watching this, and they don't understand this world. You know, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough where all of this stuff is foreign to me, right? We didn't grow up in a world where uh, we were being asked to send pictures of ourselves uh, with our phones. How would you encourage, what help do you have for parents even to have this conversation? Because if parents decide, yeah, I, I want to take this action, I want to cooperate with my kid, I want to use this technology to help protect them from, from, from predators or protect them from themselves if that's necessary. But parents need to have a dialogue. They don't want to just take their phone and say, you got this new app on there, go away. How do you encourage parents to have a conversation with their kids that is constructive, that's positive, that helps their kid become a partner in what they're trying to do? Great question. I really think about three different things, specifically when thinking about sexting. Uh, if you're going to download an app like Canopy to protect your kids, the first thing to do is to emphasize that it's actually illegal and that there can be legal consequences for teenagers do what for teenagers to do what's increasingly normal. So that's the first thing to say, man, this is real. The second thing to say is that um, a sex 
rarely stays with the person it's sent to. One in four kids has received a nude image. I think that's actually an outdated number, but at least one in four kids has received one. But only one in seven has sent one. Why is that there a difference? There's a difference there because the kids who receive them often share them with other kids. And that's what's really changed, is that if you, as a teenager, send a nude image of yourself, the chances are it's not going to stay with the person that you meant to send it to. And then finally, I would just say, man, right now a lot of kids are doing this, but not every kid is doing this. So if you're talking to a teenager, you know, saying it's illegal isn't going to be that compelling. Saying that um, it could be dangerous may not be that compelling. But saying, look, you're not alone if you're, intel- if you're, if you're wise enough to say no. You are not alone in doing this. There are great ways. There, there, there are people who really do refuse to do this, and that's the healthiest response. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, the Internet really does live forever. And for brains that are, are that are often programmed to live from, you know, the next 10 or 15 minutes of their lives, uh, thinking about the implications over decades is sometimes difficult. Now, tell us, uh, parents who are interested in this want to find out more, where can they go uh, to get your resources to help their kids? Oh, have we lost... Parents can go to canopy.us, that's canopy.us, to learn a lot more about how to have the conversation about the dangers their kids are facing online, but also about the technology that can really help address this problem. So again, canopy.us. Matt Gore, thank you so much for your time. Canopy.us. And parents, uh, you don't want to have this conversation, but that's half the reason why you need to have this conversation. Thanks for being being with us today, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you. And we're going to continue to talk about conversations you may not want to have with your kids in our worldview conversation coming up next. There are lots of threats to your children. They aren't all from teachers unions and public schools. Some of them are technology and some of them might be you. We'll talk about how you can serve your kids better when we come back right after the break. What is religious freedom and why should you care about it, both domestically and internationally? By definition, religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a harrowing reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to mount in many regions of the world. God calls Christians to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To learn more about this issue and what you can do to help, go to frc.org slash IRF to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom. Christians are called to seek after the Lord above all things. This means we must pray unceasingly, vote our biblical values, and boldly stand for truth. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission every Wednesday as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus their attention on the Lord in every aspect of their lives. Pray, Vote, Stand will help equip you to stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. 
Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Want honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world? Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch. You can listen to the show whenever it works for you. Go to TonyPerkins.com to stream episodes on demand or listen by radio through American Family and Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, or independent Christian radio stations across the country. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Mike Pompeo, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Sissy Graham Lynch, and more. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day by tuning into Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. Back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony on this special Friday the 13th back to school edition of Washington Watch. And we have talked uh, talked about the trends in education that we've seen over the last year and a half, specifically uh, with the COVID season. And we talked to a Rhode Island mother who is uh, defending her child in their school district there. Uh, public records request now a legal struggle with the teachers union. And then we also talked to somebody from Canopy.us, Matt Gore, uh, a great tool to help protect your kids from what's happening online, which is an underrated and under-discussed threat to our children. It certainly doesn't get the headlines, headlines that school board meetings do. But uh, now to continue this conversation and really what parents should be doing, how do we adjust to this new world? What is our responsibility? What's the school's responsibility? Bringing in two of the favorites, two of the stars of FRC, uh, David Lawson, FRC's director of the Center for Biblical Worldview, is joining us. And in studio with me is Meg Kilgannon, who's FRC's senior fellow for education studies. Thank you for joining us. Happy Friday. Good to be here with well, you, Joseph. Well, happy Friday it is. And, and Meg, I want to kind of go back to how COVID is affecting uh, what's de- what we're dealing with right now. How do you see the COVID season changing the way parents are thinking about education? Well, the the experience during the pandemic with the closures and then the failure to reopen when it was probably possible to reopen, um, the the um, difference between school districts in red states who were enforcing mask mandates in mm-hmm. states where there was no mask mandate. I mean, this this whole situation has laid bare the um, left wing bias of the educational industrial complex. They yeah. are woke in the same way that Silicon Valley is woke. Yeah. And parents now, now I think, are fully aware that there is an agenda. Something of an aside, but I think it's one worth mentioning here, is you talked about the fact that there are 10 schools that are requiring masks in, in their schools statewide. There are eight schools who have forbidden schools to require masks statewide. And and then we're also having these other conversations about vaccine passports that are showing up in different cities. These various policy developments that really kind of show worldview differences on the left and the right 
are, are creating what could look like just totally different worlds, right? I mean, somebody who lives in Nevada as opposed to California or Utah as opposed to California, they don't just live in different states anymore. They live in different universes in terms of what's happening in their public school, what their kids are required to do, and whether they have to show papers to go have dinner. It really is, I think, an interesting study in the implications of worldview. And, you know, and education is just one of the places where that's being played out. But David, I have a question for you, um, because uh, in your conversations about worldview, a lot of the concerns uh, that parents have for education, there's masks, but there's all this LGBT sexual revolutionary stuff. Uh, there's critical race theory. What do you see as the biggest threat uh, to parents and children from the education system? Well, I think there's a lot of threats, Joseph, and what you just uh, said it was really good. You know, ideas have consequences and worldviews absolutely have consequences, and we're seeing that played out all over the country, specifically in this realm of education. I think what Meg just said is so important. I think, you know, those of us who follow these things have seen some of these issues uh, coming for a long time, but one of the, the blessings, if you will, of the pandemic is that so many kids uh, had to do their education at home, and then parents got to see what was taking place in these classrooms. And my goodness, there's a host of issues. I don't know which one's worse than the other, whether it's uh, the LGBT indoctrinization, uh, uh, coerced forced pronouns, uh, revisionist history, the 1619 Project. There's so many issues that parents are now, uh, a lot of parents are discovering for the first time, uh, realizing that a lot of these public schools are indoctrinating their kids. And that's why uh, I've been able to go on a lot of different shows recently. Uh, just I wrote an article on the Christian duty or the duty that Christian parents have when it comes to education uh, and just reminding Christian parents that at the end of the day, you are the first, uh, the foremost uh, person responsible for your child's education, the chief disciple maker in your home. I think the the, take, the big takeaway from this conversation is that parents uh, need to be engaged in exactly what's going on with their child's education. Yeah, and, and Meg, I want to toss this one to you as well, because you're a parent and, and you care about kids and you work on this professionally. Like, you know, you see the system uh, globally. What would you say is the thing that parents should be most concerned about when it comes to the education of their children? Parents need to be the primary relationship that their children have. Your children need to know they can come to you with any question. They can ask you anything, and you're going to love them no matter what the question is. They need to know they can count on you and that you have their back. And it, it seems like a, a low bar for parenting, but but really those fundamental relationships of uh, of parent to child are so very important. And, I, you know, as parents, we're told when we take our kids to school, you know, don't worry, we've got it here now. From the school, they say, we're the experts, we'll take care of the education, you know, your, your kids are safe here. And parents were, were really forced to see what's going on because of the online learning and to ask the question, well, maybe my kids aren't exactly safe here. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the fact that that question has now been asked, that bell's been rung, it can't be unrung. And so yeah. hopefully we'll see more engagement from parents and, and less, you know, um, uh, disengagement. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and it makes me think because we talked earlier in the program to Corey DeAngelis who talked about a million and a half children have left the public school system that we know of so far. It seems to be mm -hmm. a trend that might continue. But there's also a ton of, but that leaves, you know, the super majority of American kids are still in, are in government schools, right? <laughs> right. Um, so 
And there are parents who are wrestling with this yeah. because the, and, and we see it. We talked to one of those parents today. Her kid is in a public school and she's in a legal battle with her school board because she just wants to find out what they're t- planning to teach her child. Right. And so that that's getting her into court now. And, and there are a lot of parents like that who are struggling with this. You know, maybe I'd like to homeschool. Maybe I'd like to send them to to a private school, but I can't afford it. I'm not equipped to homeschool, whatever those, whatever that is. And I'll, I'll throw this to either of you who want to answer it, but is there a point of no return? Is there something, uh, 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 is there a point at which you would say, any parent needs to say, oh, you can't tolerate that anymore because we, it feels like the water's getting hotter. The, the, the difficulty in alternatives remains real, though some state legislators legislatures are making it easier through school choice programs. But is there something that parents should simply find unacceptable and say, whatever the cost, my kid can't go back there anymore? Well, that's ultimately a question for every parent to answer for themselves. It might be the same for you and me as we both tend to share the same worldview, but it might not be. Um, And and that is the beauty of living in this country and enjoying the freedoms that we have, freedoms that are, uh, you know, we know come to us that, that from a creator, not from the state, right? Yeah. So um, in order to preserve that, children need to be well-educated, and that's the idea of public education is that we need to educate, have an educated populace to have a Republican form of government, right. small r. So um, the, the, the tipping point for each family that's their own decision. Yeah. And, and, and David, I want to ask you this because you spend so much time thinking about worldview and understand kind of how children are formed and how they're shaped. Um, is your, is it possible for parents to kind of balance out what they might get in a, in a, in a system, in a, in a school that they're not, they don't love it, but they're like, well, I'm going to take them to church. We'll do a Bible study at night. How does that go? Is it possible to kind of like counterbalance whatever they might be receiving somewhere else so that they come out strong? Oh, I agree with Meg. I think that's a decision that every family ultimately has to make for themselves, whether it's, you know, the homeschool route, the private school route or the public school route. But what I can tell you, Joseph, as what our colleague George Barna has uh, proven exhaustively through his different research and studies, is, is that one's worldview, and again, we, we've thrown that phrase around a few times, a worldview is simply the, the lens through which you see the world and interpret everything that's going on around you. Uh, one's worldview is pretty much solidified by the age of 13. Uh, so I guess that's about you know middle school, about to go into high school, so it's pretty young. And so that's, that, that fact alone, uh, I think, should weigh heavily on every parent uh, and, and at least in my experience when I was growing up, I was homeschooled, I was private school, and then I went to public school for a little bit because each year my parents said, where is David in his uh, spiritual growth? Where is he in his maturity? And is the, what's the best decision this year? Uh, but what you just said, Joseph, as well, is I think regardless of what you do with school, uh, you can't just assume that uh, your children are getting worldview training by going to youth group or Sunday school. Uh, parents, as the chief disciple makers in their home, uh, I think it's absolutely critical to be having these conversations around the dinner table, uh, doing Bible studies, doing small group, doing family worship. Uh, all of these things ultimately are part of inculcating and forming that worldview into your child. And, and let's clarify what you mean by their worldview is formed at the age, by the age of 13, which is what George Barna's research is indicating. It's that by the time you're 12 or 13, children have an opinion about uh, who determines what is right and wrong? Where did I come from? Where does my life get its meaning? And even kids who go to church, if they are, if they are just immersed in a culture that teaches them 
to follow their heart, kind of do whatever feels good, and as long as you're not hurting anybody else, that's fine. If that's what they've absorbed as a value system, it doesn't matter if they're going to church still sure. because that's going to define ultimately the decisions that they make for the rest of their life. And that's unless that gets untrained, which is hard to do, right? Because that's stuff that you don't just think intellectually. That's stuff that you feel at a guttural kind of heart level of how you process information, how you make decisions. So when we're talking about worldview formation, we're, we're trying to discuss whether our, our, our four, five, six, nine-year-old realizes that in God's mind, their feelings don't matter. <laughs> and that sometimes their feelings are the enemy. Or if they are, are being raised in an environment where people are telling them, well, how do you feel about that? And just, you know, just kind of do what feels good. Now, Meg, I'm going to change the subject a little bit um, because we've heard about these school board uh, conflicts with parents really kind of all over the country, Loudoun County, Northern Virginia is getting a lot of attention. There's a lot of parents who are probably sitting in uh, rural red parts of America. And they're like, thank God I don't live in San Francisco. Thank God I don't live in Loudoun County. Everything is fine here. What would you say to those parents? I, I would say that uh, you need to make sure that's true. And I think you'll be surprised when you investigate your, your school system. There are a lot of wonderful people in the public school system. There are fabulous teachers. Christians are in the public schools, without a doubt. Uh, but the forces that control a place like Silicon Valley, yeah. that thinking, that ideology, are also very prevalent in education. The, this, the term cultural Marxism is a term that people talk about. Yeah. Um, it's, that, is the, that is the cultural mindset of people who are running universities and schools of education within universities that produce teachers. And certainly, uh, you know, the, that impacts every school system. There are organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU who write letters all over the country to school systems in rural counties, too. Right. And they say, if you don't adopt this pro-LGBT policy or if you don't adopt this racially controversial policy, we're going to sue you. Right. And in a rural system that doesn't have a lot of resources, that's a very real threat. And so um, they, the, the school system needs to hear from parents. They need to feel your support for them, and your worldview needs to be expressed in that environment. It is desperately needed. So they shouldn't feel safe, right? <laughs> not necessarily, Don't be no. Passive. They should not feel safe. They should. It's trust but verify, to use an old phrase. Trust but verify. <laughs> right? and, and, and again, parents, these are your children. They are. Um, don't take the risk. Assume nothing. I tell my kids about, you know, tell them, assume nothing. If you have any questions, ask questions. If there are questions, ask the questions. Think about questions that you should be asking, especially when it comes to the, the training of your children, because there really is nothing uh, more important. David, uh, very quickly, where would you send parents who might be motivated by this conversation, by the show today? They're like, you know, I do need to do a better job of training my kids. Where would you send them to get resources that they can uh, help train their kids uh, in the way that they should go? Yeah, and, uh, at the Center for Biblical Worldview, we're producing resources that you can find at frc.org slash worldview. Uh, Meg and the folks here at FRC who are really focused on the education issue, you can see their material as well at frc.org. Uh, and one thing, I would just anyone watching our conversation right now, Joseph, I hope they'd watch the interview you did earlier in the show with Nicole. 
uh, the parent from Rhode Island. That's, that, that's the type of courage that's going to be needed. And even though, you know, it's not what she signed up for, it's worth the sacrifice to fight for our children. Okay, and Meg, I kind of got a two-part question for you, and we got about a minute for you to answer it. What's the biggest mistake a parent could make, and what's the best thing they can do for their kids? Wow, the the topic that could volumes of books could be written on in less than a minute. That's right. (laughs) I think the biggest mistake you can make is um, not knowing how important you are to your children, and assuming that that they would prefer to spend time with their friends instead of you, or that they don't need you when they get past a certain point. Our kids always need us, and um, they're connected to us genetically and and uh, spiritually and even not genetically if they're adopted but they, we are the primary relationship of their lives and we are very important to them so don't underestimate that that may be one answer to both questions yeah. well and, and it's good and it's probably frankly what we have time for uh, Meg Kilgannon Senior Fellow for Education Studies appreciate it very much thank you and David Clausen Head of the Family the uh, Director of the Center for Biblical Review give us that website one more time where people can go to get information yeah, frc.org slash worldview for all the worldview resources we have, Joseph, and then just frc.org for the, the rest of the resources that Family Research Council produces on a daily basis. frc.org, frc.org slash worldview. David, thank you for joining us as well. Really appreciate it. And for those of you who have been listening in today, I hope the one thing you take away is that you cannot be passive. The stakes are simply too high. The enemies are too too real. Whether it's on your kid's phone, whether it's in your kid's classroom, whether it's at your dinner table. Take charge. Take the initiative. They are your children. God gave them to you. Take that seriously. It's an investment you cannot possibly ever regret. Have a great weekend. The Lord be with you. Give you wisdom as you face it all. And happy back to school. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 